Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hope everyone had a, a good weekend. Going to a slightly different format here because of some of the news that's come down. The, the trades or trade and then a, a trade rumor. Uh, also want to talk a little bit about Bucks Raptors as well. A near mutiny in Chicago. We got to get to that also. And then we'll start off the 15 and 16 and we'll push some of it towards uh, tomorrow. But that episode will be out pretty quickly here, probably Monday morning uh, at the latest. First, though, I want to remind you that we're sponsored today by Navy Federal Credit Union. Like our mission to inform you about the NBA, Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals the priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to over 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information, call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. All right, so what is the trade that we have to announce here? So it started out as a two-team trade and then it became a three-team trade. So uh, basic, the, the key parts of it, Milwaukee is trading Matthew Delvadova, John Henson, a protected first-round pick, and a second-round pick to the Cavs. The Cavs are sending George Hill to Milwaukee and Sam Decker to Washington. He was rerouted as a part of this. And then Washington is trading Jason Smith to Milwaukee, sending a second-round pick to Milwaukee, and I believe they're also sending one because they're unprotected one that was already going to Milwaukee, and they're sending one to Cleveland as well let's start from the bucks end of this first the big news is getting off of money for 2019 and as they've had success early this year at a rousing win over the raptors in toronto that has become in some ways more of an imperative because they have four starters who are going to be free agents malcolm brogdon is a restricted free agent eric bledsoe is a free agent chris middleton is a free agent and then brooke lopez who they won't have any type of bird rights on it is also a free agent so what this did is it takes them from basically no salary cap space right at the cap to having about 25 million or so in space i'm sorry no i was looking at the wrong line to having about 36.6 million in space without bledsoe middleton or lopez that would include malcolm brogdon's cap hold which is about 1.9 million and then they can pay him as much as they want to as long as they keep that cap hold on the books bledsoe and middleton both have about 20 million or so cap holds and let's say only one of those guys wants to come back or they can only agree with one of them well now you've got 20 million or so to either replace them or maybe to re-sign brooke lopez should he need more than the room exception or you now have more room to bring all these guys back 
if you want to you still wouldn't be able to offer Lopez more than the full mid-level exception but that might be enough to get it done for him we'll see where where he's at but your problem really was going to be because they had full bird rights on Bledsoe Middleton and Brogdon you're like well why couldn't they bring all them back well they would have had big time tax problems at that point and they could have been in a similar situation to where Denver was had they brought all those guys back and this is a team that by all indications is never going to pay the tax certainly wouldn't have a significant tax payment so this now actually makes it possible to bring these guys back they basically would have about 63 million to work with overall assuming that Mirza Teletovic uh his 3.5 million that they stretched it gets taken off the cap for a long-term injury exclusion which seems likely so they should eh, I mean I guess it would be tough to bring back all four of those guys for 60 million might be a little bit difficult uh under the tax I mean they still have some more money they could potentially move with Snell and Ilyasova but that's the reason for doing this I mean they're probably not gonna be able to add to this team if they want to keep these guys around but if they do leave then they might at least have some possibility to stay competitive at that point there are two other reasons why the bucks could or would have did this deal now one of them is that it improved them on the court in the immediate george hill is better than matthew delvadova and john henson is out he is dealing with he had surgery to for a torn wrist ligament he is out somewhere between the all-star break and the end of the regular season don't know how long it would take for him to work himself into shape all that kind of stuff and it seems like they're going to try jason smith as kind of like a utility center then if he doesn't work they still have enough wiggle room under the tax they could cut him sign somebody else yeah lots I, of centers. I, I would they be christian Wood. i would they already be have other guys. smith plays it all for them i mean they got paid cash to take him i i would be i mean if he plays even over christian wood i think that would be a mistake um and certainly over maker i think it would be yeah. a mistake too we'll see but but i mean george hill can help the rotation for sure even i mean their guards aren't huge Bledsoe has a longer wingspan but i but he can still help he can capable player can help run the offense especially when they're starting brogdon and Bledsoe together having somebody else that can initiate on the second unit is good i think Hill could be energized by playing on a better team again granted he ended the season on a better team last year but that's one element and then the other element is the cost benefit analysis of doing this trade now versus doing it later so there is certainly a possibility that Milwaukee will not need to cut salary for the 2019-20 season but this helps them whether they're a cap space team whether they're a tax team helps them either way and what they gave up is it looks better now than it, it did at, at one point because I mean early on we just thought it was a first and a second but it's a pretty well protected first so the they still have this obligation to Phoenix and that pick is probably not going to convey this year because it's it's play out it's double sided protected but it's the more important side is I think it's 19 basically so if the, 17 if, to if 30 the bucks make the playoffs what it is, yeah yeah 17 to 30 and the bucks are going to be in that 17 to 30 range so then you're starting to look at 2022 let's say the pick the the, because of the Stepien rule, let's say that the Suns pick conveys in 2020. First year, the, the this Cavs pick can convey is 2022. That year, it's top 10 protected, and then it has protections moving on from there. So there isn't a chance that it is going to become something truly great because it, it converts to seconds instead of converting to an unprotected pick. So what they're probably seeing they're going is like, well, we're probably going to have to dump these two guys. We get somebody who can help us more now. And what we gave up, while it is something, it isn't necessarily as much as if we were under the barrel, whether that's because we wanted to sign a free agent or we were going to face the tax that we could get next summer. And so I think from Milwaukee's 
perspective, this trade makes a lot of sense. My only question about it for Milwaukee, I think, you know, right, it's not that much to give up and there's enough protection on it that if they're truly bad, if Giannis leaves, they'll probably be able to retain the pick. The question that I have is, could they have found someone who would have helped them more than George Hill this year with that same package, right? You know, we've heard that Phoenix is going to look to move Trevor Reza. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But you know, he as of December 15th, he'll be available to be moved. You know, would Phoenix have been willing to to do a deal like this? Or, you know, would, say, Jeremy Lin and Dwayne Dedman from the Hawks have helped them more? You know, those guys are expiring contracts. The Hawks are always in the asset acquisition business. Uh, so that's, re- that's really my only question with this. I think they did well for this price to, you know, you're not only doing a full year. I mean, we, we kind of have established this general expectation of uh, about 20 million for a first round pick but obviously there's a lot of variability there you know 20 million in dead salary a lot of variability there because you know here they're getting back a player in george hill they're also making this trade in terms of you know dead salary for two-thirds of this year now as well you know that goes into the equation although not as much i I know you like to think of it as you know once the year starts you kind of just think of the year beyond there but and i'm largely of that same opinion but the earlier you are in the year the more just having to pay guys who aren't contributors is negative value um so there may have been some other deals out there potentially but they do have the advantage of doing it now i mean i I just don't think george hill is going to like make a huge difference for them um uh bike mudenholzer obviously had him when he was an assistant in san antonio this does seem like another bike mudenholzer type of move and i am a little concerned that like hill is going to play more than bledsoe sometimes down the stretch that he might just like be a hill might be too much of a security blanket uh so there's a little bit of a concern there to me as well uh but no i think overall though when you look at the value here i think the bucks did well especially because this pick is you know not going to convey likely until 2022 at the earliest and there are some pretty significant protections so the further away the pick is uh, the more you discount it we could do washington quickly from washington's perspective they paid a second round pick and then loosened the protections to zero on a pick to get out of bad money i think the asset price there was you know, it was decent. I mean, we did, we have no idea how good Washington's going to be. And I believe it's, yeah, it's the 2022 pick is the pick that's going from Washington to Cleveland. So that's, you, you could think of that as the pick that's moving in this deal. And basically here, it's about adopting constraints. If Ted Leonsis said, we have to cut money, this is a reasonable price to cut money. Now you can get into all the discussions and I, I have a piece forthcoming at The Athletic talking about this a little bit about well, how they got into this mess. But if, if we kind of take that as a separate question, which I think is fair, you know, getting out of three and a half million, maybe they can get out of Decker entirely. And then all the luxury tax savings on top of that is a worthwhile, you know, like a, a, a second round pick is a worthwhile giveaway for that purpose if it had if it had to be done yeah washington is turning into the knicks now though with just no second round picks going forward here yeah their next four are gone and as as we so. uh and that hurts when you're just doing it for money savings you're not getting any better on the floor i mean we've seen second round picks be pretty valuable right? i mean we've seen like you know toronto got pj tucker for two second round picks that ended up not being very good obviously so that's an example if you're willing to give up those at the trade down then you can actually get players but washington uh is not a player who can be acquired for a second round pick away so they can take some solace in that at least but it would be nice to at least use those picks which are looking like they'll be in the top half of the first round for some time going forward here 
Let's turn to Cleveland's side of this now. I think they did a, a about right, but I, I think the reason why I praise them for doing this now uh, is that I'm not sure there were many other opportunities to get a first round pick for taking on 2019-20 salary at this point in time. You know, it's given that the pick is a little bit further out, you could say, ah, you know, couldn't they have gotten a better pick if they were willing to do this type of trade? But who are the teams now who really need to clear more space in 2019-20? You know, and maybe a team like that would emerge, but maybe you're just stuck sitting on this asset, which is basically being willing to use your space to for next year and you wouldn't be able to actually get anything and they're going to be bad enough that signing a play like they're going to be pretty close to the cap they weren't going to have cap space in the summer 2019 anyway so there's not a huge opportunity cost there so really the only way to make use of that space was to take on money at, at that point i mean they maybe they won't use their full mid-level exception next summer but that wasn't going to matter for them anywhere where they are as a franchise now so i think just simply the fact that they had this bird in the hand it was probably a wise idea to take it maybe they could have done better at a later point in time uh but there are no guarantees i mean do you see any other team that like clearly is going to want to move money for the 2019-20 season right now I, none come to mind right off the top of my head here well i mean so the logic for the the Cavs is probably that it was it's hard to say a team that wanted to do that trade let's say february or before this year this league year but cleveland actually could have and still could technically do that trade with using jr smith so they traded away sure. the two guys with partial guarantees where that money doesn't count the problem with the jr smith element of this as a practical matter is that the Cavs presently have about 23 million counting jr smith's partial guarantee to spend on guys for next year but that includes their draft pick is going to be high so that's going to be a lot of money mid-level all that type of stuff so they might not have enough spending power to use jr smith's in full they also might just be cutting him or doing something else this year so there might be an opportunity cost in that way like if they can't do both but the logic for this from cleveland's perspective was george hill not good enough to get a first round pick this cap savings maybe it was but it was uncertain so instead of getting maybe two middling assets, you can get something that's a little bit more tangible, even if it's more distant. And that's the logic behind it. I was more positive on this trade from Cleveland's perspective before we found out the protection, because the protection on this pick, basically, it's it's never going to be a top 10 thing. They're doing it with a very strong team. So, I mean, if Milwaukee, if Giannis is there in 2021-22, that pick is probably going to be in the bottom half of the first round, maybe even in the bottom five to 10 of the first round. So it's still, you know, it's still pretty good, but it doesn't have that great upside. I, I, I think this deal, like, I'm, I think this is a better deal for Milwaukee than it is for Cleveland. It's justifiable for Cleveland, but the risk benefit proposition for them, like you're, you're right that there might not be teams in this league year that are looking to cut money right away for next year, but we know there are going to be teams next summer that are trying to cut. And I guess the argument then is that the supply of teams with cap space is going to be high enough that maybe you lose your leverage, but we'll have to see because I mean, Atlanta got that first round pick from the Clippers and the Jamal Crawford dump later on in the process too. So we'll see. Yeah, and Hill, his guarantee date is July 1st. So, you know, we saw some teams are kind of like, all right, we did all of our stuff. And then July 10th or August 1st or something, they make their trade. Denver with the Wilson Chandler trade, you know, they teams generally aren't going to want to do that until their initial signings are done. So Hill, once his, they would have had to have cut him before July 1st to whatever team got him to realize those savings. And so it becomes a, 
a lot more difficult. And so again, I mean, there may be teams that want to cut money next summer. Oh yeah, they they had to trade Hill right. this league year. If they, if he was going to be their vessel for taking on money, it had to be during this league year. If it's J.R. Smith, if they only can do one, which we don't know, then that could be ne- next league year. But we don't. That's another one of those because his date is later in the CBA. Yeah. Rules. So I mean, the Cavs didn't do amazingly well here, but they got something. This is an asset that was burning a hole in their pocket uh, to some degree. And you know, I think also one thing that they can probably be happy about from a developmental standpoint is now Colin Sexton is going to close all these games. You know, like in the Brooklyn game, for example, he got taken out at the end for Hill. You know, Del Vadova is not a player with the stature of Hill, but you know, maybe he can recoup a little bit of value here going forward as a guy who, you know, I think has been a competent backup point guard in the NBA. He's just been supplanted by better options now in Milwaukee. And he had that sprained ankle last year that really ruined his season. Um, Anything else on this or, or shall we move on here? You want to move on to the mutiny? Or the almost mutiny? Didn't you call it the mutiny since it was the Bulls? I, I wasn't gonna sub- I wasn't gonna subject our listeners to that, but sure. <laughs> so I-, I give them. Be- I try to give them better material than Twitter. They they're taking the time. So Jim Boylan has been very cantankerous so far as Bulls coach, declaring they needed to get into better shape. He's been having these two and a half hour practices. They had a ninety minute shoot around, and then they had a really nice win at home against OKC on Friday and then go out against Boston and suffer the worst loss in franchise history a 56 point debacle it might not have been quite as bad had Boylan not done hockey subs twice with his starters the first time they trailed like 17 to 0 or something so that's a little more understandable uh but the second time they had only been outscored 5 to 3 to start the third quarter and they still got hockey subbed out and after the game, what Boylan said was, I thought we could get more accomplished in practice tomorrow. And so I was just going to rest these guys. I didn't want to like tire them all out in a fruitless attempt to come back. And they were out there embarrassing themselves anyway, is basically what he said. Uh, there was some grumbling to media about the five-man subs twice. And then it was nearly unprecedented for a team to practice on a back-to-back. And Boylan was certainly making noise like that's what it was going to be as another, not only a practice, but a grueling practice after the back-to-back. Now it is a home, two home games in a row back-to-back, so that mitigates it a little bit. But generally that is not done in the NBA. Uh, You know, Boylan has been talking about how they're doing all these suicides and these like intense practices. I've never been a fan of suicides because there are ways to get in shape while also getting better at basketball at the same time and working on your skills and improving as a basketball player when you're tired. And also like, it doesn't feel like it's just straight up punishment, which I just, I don't think that being punished is a way to get the most uh, out of players. Certainly not at the NBA level and maybe not at any level. Uh, but, you know, and Boylan also said that he is old school and he said that Greg Popovich does five man subs and he never, no one ever gets on him. You know, he seems to be reveling a little bit in this tough guy image, which is not, you know, those coaches generally have not done that well in the NBA in the last 10 years or so. I mean, because even Tom Thibodeau, you know, wouldn't talk like to this level. Um, so the Bulls players came close to, to essentially not showing up for practice. And apparently, uh, Lowry Markinen talked them down. There was talk that they were just going to like all go to one player's house and hang out there. And when, you know, everyone was like, Hey, where is everyone? They would all be together. There was talk that they would show up to the practice facility, get dressed, and then just walk out as practice started. They got talked down from that, but they did demand that instead of a practice, uh, a meeting take place 
and first the players all met with themselves for like an hour then they met with the coaching staff executives were involved in it as well and supposedly now they're all on the same page and everything is good and that's the the spin but it has not been a, a smooth start to the boiling era to say the least right now one other piece that i want to add in you might have mentioned this and i might have missed it but they also practiced on the wednesday when they came back after a four-game road trip that's another thing that doesn't happen very often yeah. in the nba so it was kind of two of those in quick succession that i'm guessing rubbed the players the wrong way as well you know practicing after back-to-back that's unusual but after practice the first day after a road trip is also unusual so you're seeing that and also like this team uh, yes the boston loss notwithstanding because that was a disaster but overall you know yeah they are 6 and 21 but this isn't like a great team that's struggling to find themselves this is a team that was not that good to begin with and hurt a lot to begin with and so i think a lot of it is you've used the term of trying to win the press conference and I think it's like, oh, I'm trying to make a statement. And it's a statement to the players and to the press and to the fans and uh, all of those groups separately. But it's just not the way that, that things are normally done. Players aren't, players aren't getting into that. And it's not like you're trying to light a fire under them because there's only so far that that fire can go. Like, I think that that's part of the reason that this bothered me a little bit. And I understand why the players are frustrated by this. Maybe not to the, to the extent that it happened. I can't, I don't know everything in it, but I mean, I'm happy that you brought up how unusual these things are because that's, that's an important part of understanding the players' mindsets right now. I will say this for Boylan. He's waited a long time to be a head coach and he's doing it his way. You know, he is, uh, a lot of people say, hey, if you get a chance, you don't want to regret not being yourself in that situation and he is i i don't agree with his methods necessarily he did supposedly send someone into the players meetings to say he was going to have them come in and like it wasn't going to be actual practice they're going to just like watch film or something uh which runs directly against what he had said after the celtics game like that within 16 hours that message changed yeah no i i agree with you there and you know maybe you could say hey you know no coach has tried to do this in a while in the nba you know zigging when everyone else is zagging you know maybe you should experiment you know i do believe in experimentation but generally this type of attitude has not really worked in the nba and he mentioned popovich there are a couple of differences there number one greg popovich has won many many championships and jim boylan hasn't and also san antonio perhaps to their detriment uh, has been so focused on getting guys in here who will fit into their culture or they had the culture too and and they've struggled this year perhaps due to the erosion of that culture they had veterans around tony parker manu ginobili tim duncan who you know were always going to go along with what the coach said and then they got players who also were going to fit into players who had gotten over themselves i would just say based on uh the psychology of some of this bulls roster they are not players who have gotten over themselves (laughs) quite the contrary in some cases so i this did not seem like it was going to end particularly uh, well but uh, we'll uh, keep focused here uh, on the drama in chicago i mean boylan supposedly has management's full support for this john paxton is also uh, somewhat of a legendary hard ass although ask him if phil jackson uh, did practices after a back-to-back uh, back in his day and they have supposedly committed to Boylan beyond this year, but there is a point at which things could go so badly that that would no longer be the case, I'm sure. So uh, we're going to talk uh, about uh, some of these other teams here. It's been a, a fun detour, but I want to tell you uh, 
about hims 66 percent of men start losing their hair by age 35 i was among them actually when i started law school at age 24 i saw a picture of myself right at the start of law school and i was like wow i'm really like starting to lose a little bit of hair on my temples and so uh i started taking finasteride at that time but it was really a pain to get it and it was really expensive at that time too you had to go to a doctor's office you had to keep getting a pr- the prescription renewed over and over again and, and it was very expensive now though well-known generic equivalents are available through hims to help you keep your hair connecting you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss finasteride has worked great for me the troops are uh, holding the line uh, over these last 10 years or so and it, it was something that i was a, a little embarrassed i guess i should say to say you know to endorse because people just don't like talking about hair loss but i realized like i'd recommended doing this to all my friends so why wouldn't i do it to my listeners uh, as well and this is just the best way to keep your hair through hymns they ship the products directly to your door and you don't have to go to the waiting room you don't have to schedule an appointment even scheduling an appointment at the doctor's office can be a pain so give hymns a, a shot at forhims.com slash capspace that's f-r-h-i-m-s.com slash capspace you can get a trial month of hymns for just five dollars while supplies last you can see their website again for full details this would cost a ton if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy but at forhims.com slash capspace easier to know slash capspace because we talk about it all the time on the program it's more convenient and it's less expensive that's an awesome combination once again forhims.com slash capspace let me know that slash capspace url that you came from us other thing we wanted to talk a little bit about before we get into the team stuff was just that great bucks raptors game today uh we won't do like the full game or treatment on it but i thought there are a few interesting takeaways here yeah i mean one thing was it was more interesting before jv came in at one point but who was playing abaka started at the five and then originally they were using pascal siakam as the backup center but then valanchunas did come in and though i thought the way that the bucks or sorry that the raptors attacked Giannis when Giannis had the ball was really interesting they were sending doubles at you know not necessarily right on the catch but at different moments they until the end weren't really using Kawhi on him as much because then Kawhi can't help as frequently but it yeah a lot of the defensive tactical stuff was really interesting to me yeah I agree and they did put Kawhi on Giannis late uh, but they didn't want to I thought Kawhi the few times that it was really matched up one-on-one it did a pretty damn good job but they held Giannis down pretty well only 15 field goal attempts only got to the foul line for three attempts as well and Chris Middleton didn't do much either uh the Bucks did shoot 39 percent for three they got up 39 attempts but the Raptors actually got up 44 attempts and got a lot more corner threes than Milwaukee likes to give up they're more looking to give up above the break threes if they can i still maintain they give up a few too many of those the first quarter was really interesting because toronto was very effective they put up 30 points and siakam was getting going to the rim in one-on-one situations and the bucks don't help as much in one-on-one situations pick and roll stuff they do have more help principles but they were just siakam was able to attack his man one-on-one and and had a couple of nice buckets even scored one one one-on-one on Giannis, but Toronto really did not have the three-point shooting ability to take advantage of those shots that the Bucks want to give up from three. You know, Danny Green was two out of four. Ibaka was four for 11 on three-pointers, which, I mean, that's a good shot for him. Uh, he's He actually ended up nine of 21 from the field. I thought he actually could have been more aggressive at times. Uh, but, you know, that's that's totally good. Uh, Van Vliet shot it well. But Cal Lowry right now is mired in the worst slump of his career. And Lowry, he missed a game four games ago uh, against Cleveland with a sore back. 
And since then, he has been horrendous. His best shooting performance in that stretch was 25% from the field. And he's taking like 85% of his shots from three during that period. And he hasn't scored more than seven points in that period or made more than two field goals in a game. So I have to conclude that this back is still bothering him and he may need some more time here. The Raptors have lost two straight now and he's supposed to be their second best player. Like, you know, Siakam, that's a nice story. Ibaka is playing really well this year. Leonard obviously is fantastic, but they need that long range shooting above the arc at, at least from Lowry. And, you know, he's has really been trending away from finishing at the room to begin with, but he really has, a, has been awful during this stretch. I mean, any kind of penetration when he does get it, there's just no chance he's going to shoot it at the rim so he's just got to get right i the fact that he missed that game and then is playing like this it's got to be health related that he's been this bad yeah it certainly seems that way and he looks a little bit off when i watch him physically just the way he's moving around the floor and the sometimes the lack of aggression to on on dribble on drives and all that kind of stuff they were helped a lot by van vliet having a, having a nice shooting game hit some tough ones too seven to twelve from the field five to seven from three coming off the bench but also spending most of the time on the floor to close the game and then the 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 other point guard who had a big clutch game in this was Malcolm Brogdon. Brogdon hit two threes that really did swing the game. I believe one was off an offensive rebound. And he just they they were the ball came to him. He didn't hesitate. He didn't take an extra dribble or anything like that. He just shot the ball and made yeah. It. He's made some strides this year. We always used complained about him just immediately taking a useless dribble every time he caught the ball. And his decision making has just been much more immediate this year as we ex- expected it would be with better coaching. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention: Tony Snell and and Sterling Brown both looked good to me in this game. You know, the moment wasn't too big for them brown had brown move i can't remember who it was that he moved in the paint it, 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 i think it might have been cj miles and I, I thought that looked good and snell you know capable defender missed a bunch of threes but still was taking the shots that you want him to in the course of the offense so milwaukee needs to find one or two guys in that part of their perimeter rotation to help and you know i think i think they have a series of options we'll just have to see who it is yeah and uh snell and Braun ahead of Connaughton and divincenzo now in the rotation we'll see how they bring in uh, george i mean this these teams match up in fascinating fashion fashion you know toronto has all these guys to guard Giannis pretty well brooke lopez stretches out he had an awesome guy i never thought that brooke lopez would be like one of like the most c guys in the nba when he gets hot from three but he he hits a step back against a point guard and then follows that up with like a 30 footer he had another like sidestep three-pointer like he, he was, was awesome in this one um and, and you mentioned the rotations they did go at the end of the first quarter i thought it looked good they got slightly outscored but with siakam at center and uh Ananobi at the four then they brought Valanciunas in and they started really getting smacked at the start of the second quarter when he was in there and then they didn't go to the Siakam at center lineup in the second half which I was surprised by so again I think that's something that they need to try out more especially against the Bucks. like their centers are not going to post up at all especially when Thon Maker is in the game like why not just go with Siakam at, at center at that point um you know and Valanciunas 13 minutes negative nine it just it's really tough to play him because the Bucks always have a shooter on the floor at center I mean how do you think these two teams match up in the playoffs it seems like the Bucks you know we've talked about how maybe Boston has a little bit of a schematic advantage against the Bucks it seems like the Bucks have a little bit of that against Toronto there's definitely some of that but I also worry that Milwaukee I don't love Chris Middleton defending Kawhi I mean Kawhi yeah. when he he was getting to his spots pretty well he ended up eight for 18 from the field but he did get to the you know I, I feel like he could do a little bit better and yeah but I I just wonder if Toronto if, you know the Bucks did a, do a great job of taking away the rim Toronto very much attacks the rim and so you know, if Toronto 
if you're going to force Toronto into a bunch of above the break threes, I'm not sure that they're quite consistent enough as a shooting team. I think that's probably their biggest weakness right now. And, you know, they're just, they haven't been, especially if Lowry is not going to play well, you know, they haven't gotten anything out of CJ Miles really this year yet. Um, So that's, uh, it'll be interesting. I, I can't wait to see these teams match up again here um all right let's actually do a little 50 and 60 now it's been uh, a long time here and uh but let's start by talking about this rumored trade and, and that can bring us into uh the lakers and suns here but we'll just talk about this in general Woj today with an article saying basically that la is trying to acquire Riza, which cannot happen happen until december 15th because he signed as a free agent so december 15th is the earliest day a free agent signing can be traded uh when you sign in the offseason or if you were signed with some kind of bird rights, then you're, you have to wait until January 15th to, to trade him. And the idea would be that KCP would be routed to a third team and KCP can block a trade, but you know he's probably not going to get paid enough to where there would be a financial reason to block the trade. I mean, maybe he just wants to stay in LA. Supposedly, they're going to try and work with Rich Paul uh, to find a way to, to move him on. But this is uh, this strikes me as like kind of a difficult conception here. Like the Lakers are not the most logical landing point for Riza from the Suns' perspective. Yeah, because they can't really give the Suns what the Suns want. They can't give assets because or because the Lakers don't really have a ton that they're willing to part with at this point. Yeah, they have intriguing young players. They're not giving up Josh Hart or Kyle Kuzma or somebody like that in a Trevor Reza trade. So without that, then you're probably looking at better options. And so I actually do theoretically like the fit of KCP next to next to Devin Booker if they're really going to try that idea of Booker running the offense and being the you know the ball handler because KCP can guard once and I like Devin Booker guarding twos better so you can kind of go in that direction it's it's a bet but it's an interesting one but that's not getting an asset back for Trevor Reza yeah. that's getting back the, another the, the player straight up trade valuation for a year that's not the straight what you up want trade makes little sense unless the Lakers were just going to throw in like a second rounder or, or something there um and if you're KCP like why do you want right. to go to Phoenix like that doesn't why would you wave your I mean I guess he would play more there and he could build up his value a little more I mean that's he, he's kind of but I, I think part of the problem is just that he hasn't been oh, healthy he could put up some numbers there for yeah, sure I think the, his problem is just that he hasn't played well when he's been out there because I don't think he's been really healthy with this right. so he's been playing a little better lately um but no so then the idea is all right we're gonna get a third team involved right because i mean it seems like just a first rounder for trevor ariza just in exchange for an expiring contract probably not going to happen right so the conception would probably be somewhat similar to that bucks Cavs trade where it's all right we're going to take on more long-term money as the suns are do they even want to do that they've been reticent to in the past uh I always felt that they should. I felt that they should have done that back in the Greg Monroe, Eric Bledsoe trade and tried to get some more out of the Bucks then. Uh, but the Suns aren't getting a significant asset for Ariza unless they take back money that goes past this year. It seems like that. That's I feel pretty confident in that. You never know. Uh, there could be a team that just wants Ariza that badly, and may or maybe you know it's a team that is so close to the back of the first round that they don't really value their first round of that much it would have to be a terrible first round pick probably but nonetheless that's what what i would see but then you get into this right like why would you know the the lakers don't have any long-term salary that they want to dump for next year they've already done all of that you know if they had luol deng still on their team then this could actually make a lot of sense right they would give up a first get a reza give up deng but they they've waived deng already they've got his stretch money already on the books so then it's like, okay, if you're this third team, why are you going to help the Lakers out and take KCP, who's worse? Why don't you just get a Risa yourself if you're trying to 
cut money and you're willing to give up a pick to do that uh because the is better than kcp probably and certainly a more versatile and and uh it was a better history of playing better. It certainly has a better reputation. Yeah. And plays a position of yeah. higher value. I mean, he Riza, one of the things that he did well last year, while I'm sure his shooting in the end of the conference finals is lingering for Houston fans, he also defended Kevin Durant better than anybody else did in the playoffs last year. And that's a that's a data point. It's not a definitive one, but it's a data point. Yeah. So I, I really this to me seems more like a trial balloon coming from the Phoenix side of hey, Ariza's gonna be available very soon. Get your offer. We're having discussions get your offers in you know sometimes that's what what these Woj articles end up being like if there's a leak that's the reason that this is getting leaked right you, you always think about well what's the motivation to leak this that's probably what it is maybe it could be the that they're looking to try to get this third team but i don't think so i mean it's just really i don't see how it makes sense for phoenix to trade into the lakers like i just i can't come up with all right if the lakers want to just give a first round pick to trade kcp for or you know cobble together some other salary to trade it to to phoenix uh you know for a reason fine yeah i'm sure phoenix would love to do that but i don't think the lakers are giving up a first rounder for a reason so again I, my prediction would be that trevor reason doesn't end up on the lakers unless it's some kind of a buyout situation but let's talk a little bit about what we've seen from the lakers and Suns in the last couple of weeks why don't we start with the lakers fundamentals here danny the lakers are now 16 and 10 5 and 2 since the last time we covered them in 15 and 60 their plus 2.7 net rating puts them 10th in the league they are middle of the road in offense 109.8 puts them 14th 10th in defense 538 projects them to win 44 games which would tie them for the eighth seed and gives them 58 percent chance of making the playoffs Brendan Ingram sprained his ankle last week and is scheduled to be reevaluated the middle of this week. I think one of the most interesting statistical things about this team has been the defense with their centers on the floor. Early in the season, they were stopping teams with JaVale on the floor, but they just didn't have a backup center. These Kuzma center lineups, they're playing Jonathan Williams. They're just getting smashed. And so they signed Tyson Chandler. What do the numbers look like now with those two centers on the floor defensively? So I think there are two different stories being told with, with each one of them. So with JaVale, they have now a 107 defensive rating and actually a negative net rating in JaVale's minutes. Part of that is because they've been absolutely annihilated when he's on the floor and LeBron is not negative 11.5 there. So that's putting in a lot of the work in terms of that slight, that negative net rating. Um, but when JaVale and LeBron are together, the success is, is defense field. They have a 106 offensive rating, which is not great for a LeBron team. And when you look at the defensive element of it for JaVale, the four factors aren't great. You know, they're below average of forcing turnovers and defensive rebounds. They're not fouling anybody. And then what struck me, though, was the middle of the road and opponent effective field goal percentage. And why that struck me is because then I went into some of the more, more detail on it. And in the JaVale lineups, the Lakers are giving up a ton of shots at the rim, 42% of opponent shots, which is a lot for the restricted area. And teams are missing way more of those than you'd expect. They're at about 57% field goal percentage, which is the fifth percentile of all the kind of lineup data that's out there for the season. And their other attempt rates are low, but I think a lot of that is just because they're giving up so much at the rim that there are only so many shots to go around to everything else. And they've been somewhat unlucky on threes during the JaVale minutes, but the being lucky on shots in the restricted area is a, a far bigger weight. And so when I look at the JaVale numbers, I do not see something that is particularly sustainable. And it's also at a, a lower level of success than what they've done with Tyson Chill, of course. Now, I would add that luck on shooting at the rim is a little bit different. I think like that is 
the most sure. skill dependent uh, uh, as a defense you know because you're actually contesting at the rim whereas shots from other zones generally it's like you're not taking those shots unless you're open unless it's you know right at the end of the clock but if you're around the rim you're probably going to go up whether you're open or not and you can really still uh, affect that shot guys will try it a, a little bit more but yeah i mean that's such a low number uh, and mcgee has been better he's been tougher to score on uh, around the rim this year like i definitely noticed his improvement in terms of blocking shots and he's right up there. i think he might still be leading the nba in uh, blocks per game so he, he has been a part of that you know I, I so i think they can continue that to some degree Oh, and, and one thing I should add there is that opponents are shooting below 50% when JaVale contests a shot at the rim, and that is a very low number. So that's that's a, that speaks to his impact as well. How have things looked uh, when Tyson Chandler's on the floor? So with Chandler, they have a plus 14 net rating, 97.7 defensive rating is ridiculous. And with Chandler, it m- looks more like what you'd see of what, what I think of as a good defense. Now, they're not really fouling that much. Very strong defensive rebounding. Tyson Chandler has been great at that for a long time. Not great at forcing turnovers, but not terrible. But then the part that's really in- fascinating and the part that also is probably unsustainable is, again, if opponent effective field goal percentage. But here, 97th percentile. Their effective field goal percentage is below 44%, which is completely bonkers. And so the, the again, then it's good to go into the proportions and effectiveness type data. And the opponent's shot proportions look great. Here, low frequency at the rim, more from mid-range, and three-point attempt rate is fine. And so that that all looks good. So you're looking at it, you know, fundamentals look clean. But then the part of it that's unsustainable is that opponents are missing shots from everywhere, you know, below 60% at the rim, 32% from mid-range, 32% from three. All of those are so low. You talked about how like the elements that you can and cannot control, like the, just random chance is going to knock those up because they're all, you know, elite, elite numbers. But the point that it should not be, oh, the Lakers are so lucky. It's that even if they are less lucky, they'll still be doing well defensively in these minutes. It's just that it won't be as much of an outlier. And I think that's a pretty good positive for them. Half court defense has been great. And the transition stuff has been okay in those lineups too, which is cons- which is a good thing because LeBron teams in the past, especially as he's deactivated a little bit defensively over the last couple of years, that has been a bugaboo for them. And it's a bugaboo for a, a point of the JaVale minutes too. So one of the things that I really noticed about them, especially seeing them in person uh, against the, the Pacers uh, and Mavericks, they give up a ton of threes to the Mavericks. The Pacers just are not that dynamic without Oladipo. But I think that their strategy with these big centers and and very traditional pick and roll defense dropping the big back works very well against a lot of teams but if you look at some of the teams that they've struggled against they have either a real good shooting center or a guard who can shoot the three pretty well uh, out of pick and roll so uh, they lost to houston they gave up a buck 24 to them they did beat denver at home but they got blown out by them on the road orlando nick vucevic we talked about this killed them in both of those games i don't know if you want to put atlanta in this category with trey young although he had a really good game that game uh they barely beat Atlanta. That was the LeBron tip dunk after missing a bunch of free throws at the end. Uh, and then they've got one and one against Minnesota with Carl Anthony Towns. So both of those were uh, pre-Butler departure. So it's been a different Minnesota team since then. So they haven't played that many teams with shooting centers and they haven't really played that many teams with like, I mean, this is just me being subjective here, but guys with like really good shooters out of pick and roll. So I'd be very interested, for example, to see what they look like going against the Warriors in particular. 
and Houston again, you know, Charlotte will be a really interesting one with Kemba Walker, the way he's shooting the ball out of pick and roll right now. Um, so I, I agree with you. You know, I don't think the defense is going to be this good going forward, but I do think their offense will get better, especially the more they give the ball to LeBron, uh, in theory. Uh, why don't we turn to Phoenix now? Phoenix is oof, four and 22. They have lost seven straight. Uh, Devin Booker out with a hamstring and uh, set to miss a significant time. The latest on him, he won't be back against the Clippers on Monday. And there's no word of him getting through a practice yet. So without him, they had been making some strides once they moved into point guard. They'd been more competitive. And since he went out, they have just been absolutely getting trucked. I mean, they had back to back games where they trailed by 20 at the start of the first, uh, at the end of the first quarter. I mean, like, I think, and giving up like well more than 30 points and not even scoring 20 themselves. I mean, just absolutely desultory. No, they didn't score 10. Yeah, that was back to back games. They scored nine points in. Yeah, nine points in consecutive first quarters. <laughs> oh, man, I knew it was one of the games. I couldn't remember if it was both of them or not. Uh, yeah, they were outscored. I think it was 70 to 18 in those two games, something like that. Yeah, so they are back to 30th now in net rating, negative 12.5, 28th in offense, 29th in defense. They project for a mere 20 wins and their playoff odds are quite low, less than 1%. But what did you want to focus on with them this week since, you know, there hasn't been a ton to talk about just in terms of their competitiveness uh, as a team here? So I started out, I wanted to do a deeper dive on DeAndre Eaton's offense. You and I have focused on another part of the ball, which I'm not even going to say that word during this because I don't want to. But I ended up zoning in even more than that because we'll have time to talk about his offense more broadly. And we can do a little bit of the numbers if you want to, Nate. But what I got really into was his passing. And that's something that you and I both liked about him during that season at Arizona. And so I watched all of his assists, all of his turnovers, and how it started was the Suns have a 1.55 points per possession when he passes out of post-ups. It's only 20 possessions. It's not a big sample, but I thought that was really interesting. And so I started looking into it. And what I would say are the biggest positives for Aiton as a passer is that he makes quick decisions and he is actively looking for teammates when he is not in a position to score. And so the quick decisions thing, it's it's pretty obvious the appeal. You and I have talked about Serge Ibaka's slow decision-making for a few years because a lot of times with centers, they have a window, but that window tightens now with the way doubles come and everything else. And so Aiton... He, if he has the ball and he kind of sees something, he can get it there right away. One of his best attributes is grabbing an offensive rebound, seeing he can't put it right back up and just being like, somebody's open and just firing it to a corner. And that guy's open, gets a three off in plenty of time. They can't recover in time. That's a, a really nice positive for him to have. And then the looking for guys, the most impressive, it was a really striking play because it just doesn't happen for centers very often. He was trapped kind of underneath his own basket and he was was doubled kind of just guys coming over but he just didn't have a lot of real estate and he's underneath the basket sees Devin Booker above the break open because his guy came down into in the collapse the play and gets the ball to Booker Booker drills a three and those are not plays that people his size make very often especially not at his age yeah now I think the next step for him is to just get a little bit more dynamic in terms of the pass and shoot decision where a lot of times okay the double team comes over and he just throws the pass immediately gets it out of his hands I think that's a good instinct to have a lot of young players don't have that 
but when he starts to make his move and he gets good position and then the double team comes once he's already actually really started his move you know i don't think he's been as effective passing in those situations that's the toughest thing for a young post player to learn obviously offensively or to just you know pass fake and go into a move and just to, to kind of be a little bit more reactive to the defense instead of making his decision right at the start of the play but the good news is is that when he does make his decision right at the start of the play generally it's been reasonably uh, effective on defense the numbers overall have been not bad in terms of the on off metrics but if you dig into them more and ben falk did a, an article about this uh, on cleaning the glass he's really benefited from unsustainable opponent three-point shooting in particular and when you really look at the percentage of opponent shots at the rim and what they shoot at the rim if that three-point shooting were more normalized their defense would be just as bad with him out there as it is with, with their other centers and when their other centers are uh Rashawn Holmes uh, at this point in time you know that's not necessarily complimentary uh, last thing on these guys remember Ryan Anderson reduced his guarantee for next year as part of the trade to Phoenix on the idea that he was going to be the starting power forward and, and get to play more it looked like in Houston his role was going to be reduced Carmelo Anthony basically was replacing him and so he reduced his guarantee down to basically the same amount that Brandon Knight would make next year. And now he has played 40 minutes in their last 15 games and has not played in 11 of those 15 games. He is just, once it became clear that the season was going south, he just has not been playing at all. I don't know if they're just going to straight up waive him because still, you know, 75% of his salary next year is guaranteed, but there's just, let this be a lesson. Just don't give up significant guaranteed money unless you know you're going to get it back right away. Remember Dwayne Wade gave up like 9 million guaranteed from the Bulls to go to the Cavs. How'd that work out for him? <laughs> he, he was traded. Or I was thinking of a Houston Rockets yeah. related one. That was Ty the next Lawson. one I was going to get to. He, he is, uh, I mean, he, he cost himself, what, probably 12 million bucks or, or so. Um, that was his guarantee that they removed uh, so he could go there. And so, yeah, you know, players want to play. They want to win. But the problem is the league knows right like generally you the league is going to make the right decision about you and so if you have guaranteed money and a team is asking you to give it up it's because they are concerned that they might want to waive you <laughs> or they're you're not that big a part of their plans or there is some significant risk and so it really it is just not a good decision <laughs> to give up guaranteed money uh when it's you know to that level of significance like all right you know if you're signing somewhere and it's a couple million dollars difference or you know you're, you're getting a buyout at the end of the year and it's you know a couple hundred thousand bucks all right but like if we're talking about like five million mo or more in guaranteed money generally i think that's usually going to end poorly for the player and, and ironically anderson uh, i know he's been awful this year he's a 4.5 pr uh just has not been able to get the shots to go down it hasn't been effective but he still would probably be playing more in houston where he had more of a track record and they just needed his space than he would be playing in Phoenix. Well, yeah, especially because Houston just needs depth. A couple other quick things I want to mention about in Aiton, his turnovers, his turnovers were not as much as a passer that we did have a couple. Those were more just like he made the right idea, but he threw it, you know, failures of execution, threw it too high, too low. There was miscommunication. His turnovers were more like get it, having his footwork a little bit loose on his spin move, his spin move, or getting stripped on his spin move. Th things more in that side of it. I was surprised we didn't see more illegal screens because that's something that young bigs often have trouble with. And 
And then the other, you talked about the idea of kind of him, his judgment, but whether he his skill as a passer becomes something where you could use him more as a hub. I mean, Marcus Gasol is kind of the model here, and maybe he gets to that point in a few years. He doesn't really pass guys open that often, but he does make good reads. And so if Aiden can get to that level, then that's another line of value that he can provide. And he's been pretty good making reads on like DHOs, but that's a little bit different than being at the, like the elbow or elbow extended and making. Would passes. you say he's been better or worse than you expected him to be this season? I think he's been almost exactly what I, I expected. I agree. So maybe then, a, I, maybe then a little bit better, just because there's often downside on that. You know, like I'm often a little bit higher, and then the guys, yeah. So, but yeah, he's been he's been very similar, and it's not only like in terms of overall value; it's also like what he's been good at and what he's been bad at is about what I expected too, which is kind of unusual to be to have it be that way. And we'll see where it goes from here. All right, got a couple more teams to, to do in this one. Let's talk the Oklahoma City Thunder. Had a bit of a rough spell here. Just in terms of how they've been playing 16 and 8 4 and 1 since the last 15 and 60 they had that loss in chicago 7.6 net rating is third in the nba 16th in offense number one in the nba in defense and they project for 54 wins second in the conference and 98 percent chance of making the playoffs but it really should have been three and two in their last five had it not been for an incredible fourth quarter by paul george and their crazy comeback against the brooklyn nets and the quarter started the nets led by 18 but the crazy thing was paul george checked back in with just under nine minutes remaining and they'd only knocked one point off the lead so it's a 17 point game and they made that up with nine minutes left and paul george had 25 points in eight minutes and 35 seconds he was nine of 12 from the field four of six from three actually missed a couple of free throws (laughs) amazingly enough uh that could have set it even higher uh plus 19 had six rebounds during that period as well what stood out to you from that crazy comeback uh, both about george and the team well i mean paul george so he started out on the outside he hit a couple of threes on consecutive possessions he had one off a flyby and then the next time down the nets don't really set up their assignments it's in semi-transition and D'Angelo Russell's on him and Paul George just pulls on him, you know, uh, above the break, just right in rhythm and gets that. And another thing that was crazy, so Paul George only missed three shots from the field. OKC rebounded all three of his misses and one of his two free throw misses, which is just crazy. I mean, that they end up getting all those. Steven Adams is a monster. And a couple of those turned in baskets. One of the most insane sequences of that comeback was Paul George missed a shot. Steven Adams got the rebound. Paul George gets it back, gets fouled for an and one. Paul George misses the free throw. They get the offensive rebound on the missed free throw. Paul George gets fouled again. And I think he splits those free throws. That I think those were his two misses. And so it's just like how a lot of things were just going wrong for the Nets during that time. And it was really interesting. We'll see sometimes that coaches will do this. Russell Westbrook was brought back in at the same time as Paul George with nine minutes left. And they brought Westbrook in a, a little bit earlier than he usually would return because they ended up playing 40 minutes. And you remember, they usually keep him around 34 minutes and he's coming off surgery here. But a lot of coaches will do this. Terry Stotts will do this too, where it's like, okay, you know, we're down 17. Let's bring the starters back in a little early here. And, you know, odds are we're not going to, come back but we'll at least know whether we're going to come back or not and if it doesn't go well for us in these first couple of minutes then we'll just take them out and they'll be done for the night and they won't play that many minutes so that's how russ ended up getting it to the 40 in that game because they immediately started the comeback he he had 21 points uh, but it took him 24 shooting possessions uh, to get there he did have 17 assists uh, and 15 rebounds as well the last play uh, was fantastic in that game and you know westbrook had taken i think a, a pretty tough shot 
the time before georgia was on fire westbrook gets the defensive rebound when d'angelo russell takes a, a really bad shot there i think there was about a six second differential i want to say and russell takes the the shot at six so there's plenty of time westbrook gets the rebound and normally you would be like this is definitely a no timeout situation and billy donovan called it so quickly like before westbrook could even dribble and he had a head of steam up that they were still able to advance the ball because once you dribble you can't advance the ball in that situation uh and you and i were watching it at the time we cut over to it on the nba cast just for the end of the game and we were like man i can't believe they called timeout like what a terrible decision but i think the the idea was you know we want to make sure that paul george gets this shot here and uh paul had never hit a game winning shot before it the uh was subjected to much ridicule because he showed it in that gate that gatorade commercial but never actually had hit it and so they dialed up a, a really nice play george screening for westbrook slipping the screen the nets completely miscommunicated on the play that should have been an auto switch uh they were late george eluded dinwiddie who rotated out to him late and just got a wide open three which he canned to give the thunder the win I want to mention a couple other things from this fourth quarter. One, there was a, a, a truly incredible play where Russell Westbrook was guarding Alan Crabb. I think they had just switched something on the play. And it was the kind of a reverse scram. He leaves Alan Crabb to go over to, to I think it was D'Angelo Russell. And Stephen Adams, who is guarding Russell and standing out there on the perimeter, after Russ has already left, he's like, hey, go over there. And so Alan Crabb is wide open for about five seconds. Russell passes Crabb the ball before Adams can get there. Crabb takes a three, but because he's Alan Crabb this year and he can't make a shot, Alan Crabb misses it. And then the other one was OKC makes a lot of teams look sloppy and choppy, but the Nets had some real moments where they they fed into that, where you know, it was like, because they don't have Karis LeVert now, is a lot of like trying D'Angelo Russell or Dinwiddie trying to create, but OKC has such great one-on-one defenders. Like Paul George was guarding Dinwiddie because why not? And Dinwiddie is a talented player. I like him a lot, but he's he's just not good enough to create on Paul George because very few guys are. And so that oh, and then the other thing we have to mention something else we saw in the NBA cast. The Nets were up one, had the ball with a four second differential, and D'Angelo Russell pulls yeah yeah I, a three, I mentioned that a pull up yeah. three. Uh, oh, you did. I thought you. I thought you didn't. Uh, I drove me completely insane. Yeah, that's right. I forgot it was like, a four second differential, so it's even more. Yeah, it was a four second differential. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just simply I mean, airballing a shot and having a shot clock violation would have been much better in that situation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Russell Westbrook's season so far. 51% true shooting. He was 52%. Actually, I guess you could say with Ronnie is 52% both of these seasons. And it's starting to get fair to wonder whether, you know, he's really moving into a new phase in his career. But the biggest difference really between what he did in his MVP season and these last few years was the three-point percentage. He's been 30%, 30%, 30%, and now 23% in four of the five for the last five years. And he was 34% that season. You'll remember that was the season where they had all these crazy comebacks. A lot of them where you know he would come in and just jack up tough threes and, and was hitting them enough down the end of games that they could play great defense and make these comebacks. But at 23% from downtown, he's actually shooting more of his shots as threes, 26% versus 19% last year. But it was 30% the year before that. So that's really how he was able to have what was the most efficient season of his career with that crazy high usage in that MVP year, 2016-17. But 
it seems unlikely that he's ever going to be above a 30 percent three-point shooter that year looks like such an outlier he's never been higher than 32 percent in any other year in his career and the good news though is at least like his shooting at the rim is best in his career right now 67 percent and he's taking a career high percentage of his shots at the rim right now at 42 percent so you would think the part of his game that would be falling off would be getting to the basket and getting to the rim and that's not really been the case so far the usage is definitely down some so that's part of it too you know he's down at 32 percent when in that mvp year he was 42 percent which uh you know i think is still the nba record but and he was 34 percent last year so he is being a little bit more judicious about his shots but he's not been able to be more efficient because he's just so broke uh, on these three-pointers right now one thing i will mention you talked about how his his attempt rate at the rim has gone up is that his free throw attempt rate has gone down it was 43 percent compared to his field goal attempts in his mvp year went to 34 last year and now it's down to 30 so that is one way that he is not providing as much value as before we'll we'll see that that might just be because he's getting fouled a little bit less maybe they're calling it you know because he actually had a i think what's happening is some of those plays he's just either they're not calling the foul or he's not getting fouled on them where he was before and defensively you know he's still the, the kind of the similar guy to what he was before you know he can be a functional piece in an elite defense but he's not really providing a ton of that value so yeah i mean it it would be fascinating to see kind of kind of where his career is going to go from this point but i agree with you that it does look like it's a different phase well and here's the other thing that's been oddly killing him too he's over 80 percent free throw every year of his career basically except one when he was 78 percent last year you remember he was shooting like in the 60s for like the first couple months of the season eventually got it up to 74 percent and then this year he's 63 percent again so you really just have to wonder like what it is with his shooting and maybe you know you hope that it's not getting to the point now i mean he still has a high free throw attempt rate but it's not anywhere close to where it was for most of his career this would be the lowest of his career by far 30 percent, as you mentioned so i don't know whether he's just not getting there uh or whether he's now feeling a little bit more gun shy when you're shooting only 63 percent. maybe he's not seeking the contact i'm guessing it's probably the former uh that he's just you know not capable of getting there quite as much as he had uh but you know i mean if they had the him from like a couple of years ago with this defense i would be a lot higher on them i'm still just very skeptical of their ability to score enough in the playoffs where do you want to go next here should we do uh utah and houston since we we focused in on that game uh to some degree yeah we can do that so let's let's start with the utah jazz i mean might as well start with the team that actually won the game so the jazz are 13 and 14 four and three since last time we did this they are 14th in net rating at plus 1.3 a lot of that coming from their their absolute demolition of the of the rockets in this game and then san antonio the game before it's interesting because they traded that win back on on sunday when they lost that had to be really disappointing uh, for jazz fans who felt like the team was gaining some momentum and this has been just an incredibly inconsistent considering they lost by 50 in dallas and they had these two massive blowouts of san antonio and houston and then they go right back to san antonio and like can't stop the spurs and and lose by 13 yeah and san and san antonio was on a back-to-back right i believe they were yeah because they played the lakers uh saturday night yeah played the lakers on saturday yeah so the jazz are 21st in offensive rating and arguably more disappointing eighth in defensive rating and 538 still projects them to win 47 games which will put them fifth in the west and gives them an 80 percent chance of making the playoffs a lot of that on the weight of their preseason projection which was something i agreed with because i thought they were going to win more than even the 47 yeah so let's just talk briefly uh, about 
what some of the d- the differences are in uh, their defense uh, here before we talk about uh, how they matched up in that game against Houston. Sure. So a, a lot of the stuff with their defense in particular looks really similar to last year. Like it's you know it's it's variance on a theme. Maybe they're they're ranked a little bit lower in in different four factors. You know, like they're they're not forcing as many turnovers as last year, but it's not a big difference. They're not getting as many defensive rebounders, but it's not a big difference. But the big thing that has changed is their opponent effective field goal percentage. And a lot of that difference is teams shooting from mid-range. So Rudy Gobert and their prevent their prevention of threes leads to the Jazz giving up a lot of mid-range shots. We generally talk about how that's a very good thing for a defense as a, as a functional goal. Last year, opponents only made about 39% of those mid-range shots. This year, and this is before the Spurs game, that's up to 43%. So they went from the sixth lowest opponent shooting in at, from mid-range to the fifth highest. And then, you know, a little bit stronger opponent numbers in other places, but it looks like the mid-rangers are the big swing in their opponent shooting. And some of that might be bad luck. Some of it might be that last year was a little bit fortunate, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and the other thing still that, that's been a struggle for them is 25th in three-point percentage offensively. But uh, they did have this really nice win against Houston. And uh, this will include some observations on uh, the Rockets uh, as well here. But we can start by uh, talking about Rudy Gobert, who got ejected a couple minutes into the game he had made some comments after a jazz loss in miami and gotten fined saying basically that it was the same old small market shit i'm i'm sorry i'm just never sympathetic to things like that that there is some sort of bias because of the market or whatever uh you know the spurs are a small market and they led the league and not following for years and years and years you know it, it is quite possible to not get called for fouls if you're in a small market and, and rudy was pissed off because donovan mitchell didn't get a call and rudy got called for a foul on Dwayne Wade. well he fouled Dwayne Wade, and donovan mitchell didn't get fouled at the end of that game so a lot of people were saying you know this is courtney kirkland who you'll remember actually got suspended very rare that'll happen to a ref for uh, a headbutting incident with sean livingston a, a couple of years ago so uh, kirkland is definitely has a history of being a little bit of a hothead and uh, there was a video that showed the jump ball that Rudy Gobert got called for a foul on, but he actually fought him. If you, if you like the video that was going around initially, like didn't show the very beginning, but he actually puts his arm on top of the arm of Clint Capella and tries to like hold him down. That's a foul. Now you could say, oh, they never call that and blah, blah, but no, it is a foul. Like, like if the foul that was called was a foul. And then his the second call that he got, he's trying to post up a, on James Harden, and he grabs James Harden's jersey and gives him an elbow. And yeah, Harden flopped a little bit, but that's a foul. He grabbed his jersey, trying to get position with Harden fronting him in the post, and he put his forearm into him, and it was a foul. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, why are you grabbing the dude's jersey? So then Gobert goes to the scorer's table seemed pretty calm and then just like gets really angry like knocks some shit off the scorer's table like right into ross gold and wooday and then starts screaming at the ref and uh gets a well-earned one technical ejection and so you thought the jazz would be sunk in that game uh, but then uh, they took off Derek favors uh, had a wonderful game uh you watched that one what did you take away just in general uh about either team for that matter i'm even more worried about chris paul than i was before i mean i this this he was a game had a this good is something start liam actually brought, amazingly 
Uh, but he had a good start, but I mean, he just doesn't look like there's as much burst there. Also not seeing as much from him defensively. And, you know, Utah hasn't been giving teams as much trouble. I mean, granted that offensively, they haven't done that a ton over the last couple of years, but like, I mean, Chris Paul could, you know, getting to his spots in the mid range and taking those shots. Yeah. He's not going to finish at the rim against Rudy Gobert. We, we, and Gobert was out of this game. He's not going to finish at the rim against nobody right now. Like he blows so many, even when he's like wide open, like he doesn't even shoot like a normal lamp. He kind he's sort of like, he almost shoots like a floater on a layup and will just like doesn't use the backboard and just like hits it off the back rim like he, he just for whatever reason he can't even make like a, a wide open layup these days yeah and, and so that's a, a very real concern just if he's not putting fear into the heart of the defense and the other big thing i mean so one of the stories for this season has been that Derek, like the jazz just haven't really done well when favors has been on the floor him as a backup center has been a big disappointment and then some of the favors go bear minutes have been troubling as well he really really stepped up in this game and, and it's notable that he came off the bench. This was not a game that Derek Favors started. They were going with Jay Crowder at the four. Favors comes in, replaces Gobert. So that does mean he's playing the five full time. And then Favors and Udo split the center minutes. And I thought they both did really well. Yeah, uh, Epe Udo is a really nice luxury to have as a third center. They actually had him intentionally switching on to Houston's guys, especially because a, a lot of the minutes he was in is when Harden was sitting. And Chris Paul had no chance against him. Like, Udo did a great job keeping him off of his right hand. Paul tried to get there anyway, but Udo's length was fantastic. I think Paul tried him maybe three or four times and didn't even come close to getting a good shot off of those switches. Um, so that was really impressive. Favors didn't do as much switching, but he was pretty effective at the rim. And really, the Rockets looked awful offensively other than just a period late in the second quarter when James Harden started splashing some step backs and he made 10 points in a row. Um, but the Jazz defensive plan against Harden, you'll recall we we talked about this in the playoff series last year that they essentially were getting so far on Harden's right hip. Like they weren't even on his right hip. They were almost like on like the right side of his torso, like basically just right next to him, almost essentially giving him a lane to go to his right because they just did not want him going left. And, and I understand the sentiment there because he's so much better of a passer going to his left throwing passes with his left hand he doesn't really throw right-handed passes to the left side of the floor uh and and he's well he has an okay right hand for a lefty you know he's much better again finishing going to his left they kind of changed that up it looked to me a little bit where now they're just all right we're gonna get on his hip but we're gonna kind of have our stance at like a 45 degree angle instead of a 90 degree angle where we're just giving him a path and inviting him to go right and so it was still he could get going to his right but now they at least were able to kind of stay on his hip and contest it and affect him instead of just like letting him blow by essentially going to his right and so I thought that was a lot more effective because they still were doing a good enough job that he couldn't get to his left on a, on a lot of those plays um you know again Harden it just doesn't quite seem to be although the numbers are somewhat similar doesn't quite seem to be striking fear into defenses as much as he did last year their offensive pace seems to have slowed even more they take forever to get into their half court offense I mean that's one thing that I really just they don't go fast enough and I guess they just figure well if Harden's gonna just ISO anyway like 
we might as well just take it easy and he can just relax for the first 10 seconds and dribble it around and then he'll do his iso but and they got to start things quicker like harden there's no reason to dribble around for six seconds before you start your move and then just be below five in the shot clock where you have to shoot a step back i mean maybe he's just tired and he needs to rest for those 10 seconds but like if you just start like there's no reason you can't do whatever move you're going to do with 11 on the shot clock instead of five on the shot clock so and that at least then you can get some penetration and there's time to move the ball around it and get an open shot um let's see what else is there on Houston I was really surprised that the Rockets didn't target Kyle Korver at all when he was in the game you know with small small pick and rolls they did so much of that last year uh and they didn't I didn't notice them targeting him once that that was interesting yeah something I thought was in this game and I've seen it in a couple of the re- recent Rockets games is that it just doesn't seem like their screens are as as aggressive or as as firm as in previous years and again that's that's an underappreciated part of what gets guys open is just just setting a good screen and they have guys who should be capable of doing that maybe if Nene when he's back more you know if he's still working through some stuff that could help but yeah I mean Capella I mean it's true in a bunch of different ways and I think screen setting is a small part of that picture he just doesn't look as dynamic on either end of the floor as he did last year no and it's really like they've had a drop off at nearly every position some have been larger than others Chris Paul certainly you know Nene is just is back now but he has not been the offensive player that he was his first couple of years so far at least or he hasn't been as good defensively either switching out did have 11 points in this game but a lot of that was garbage time michael carter williams actually uh second on the team in scoring with 13 points that's when you know it was uh garbage time was involved Uh, but then you see the downgrade from ariza to Ennis, Eric Gordon has been struggling with his shot at at times. P.J. Tucker just isn't quite the same guy on either end, I don't think. Uh, You know, they're they're still the same guys. They still do the same things. It's just these incremental reductions. Gerald Green, they haven't gotten as much production from him on either end this year. He's been making more mistakes, hasn't been as dynamic shooting the ball. They don't have Ryan Anderson, as we discussed. So it seems like all of these incremental reductions and that's how you get a team that is now 14th danny in the western conference at 11 and 14 the the western conference has a lot of good teams but uh that's still amazing to say that sentence that the houston rockers are 14th in the western conference right now um and and 25 games into the season yeah and their fundamentals negative 1.8 rating that's 21st in the nba still the ninth ranked offense i mean that's a huge reduction and they are 25th in defense they still project for 49 wins but again a lot of that is just uh they're given 88 percent chance of the playoffs but they better not get the eight seed <laughs> that's that's for sure uh i thought the the jazz just had such a great plan for attacking houston offensively and, and to some degree actually they are i think a better offensive team with favors at center than with gobert obviously the, the defensive difference more than makes up for that uh, but despite shooting 25 percent from three going eight out of 32 the jazz still had a 118 uh, offensive rating and what i really liked about what they did remember going back to game two when they upset houston and you thought oh maybe they're going back to utah they could make this a series and then they just couldn't score in those next two games uh, and the series was over the way that they beat Houston, I thought, in that game two was having guys slip early to the rim. And Houston's adjustment was, we're going to be a lot more physical and we're just going to hold guys and we're not going to let you get that slip to the rim, right? Because when they switch, then a lot of times the screener is going to have inside position and he can get right to the rim for a dunk You can, if you execute it properly. And this is about as good as I've ever seen a team execute, but that just you know getting an advantage getting a system type bucket 
off of just a pure switch situation and so how did they do that well number one the rules changes made a huge difference because seven times in the first half houston was called for a foul on a guy slipping a a screen to the rim a couple of those were just right at the point of attack trying to grab the guy as he slips it another couple were the guy trying to post up uh, under the rim or and a couple more where they threw him threw him the ball and the foul occurred on the entry pass but clearly i mean seven fouls in one half on one type of action that is a massive number and then you know not only do you just get the benefit of getting into the bonus earlier and the, and the benefit of shooting free throws in those situations but then also it's a constraint play right you you now on other plays cannot hold the guy and if you have inside position he's gonna be open the other thing that they did was James Harden was guarding Ricky Rubio and Ricky Rubio you recall had that hamstring injury could not play in that series and it was very clear to me more so than ever before of how they missed him and that was Rubio is fantastic at finding that guy slipping to the rim and he was being guarded by James Harden and Harden was terrible defensively in this game he's not going to be a huge effort guy where if the big slips the screen or sets it and is behind him Harden is going to really fight hard to stay with him on a hard roll to the basket and deny him the ball and then Ricky Rubio is such a good passer he would pick the ball up right as the screen was taking place pass fake get the help defense out of the way and then throw the ball right down into favors was the guy a lot of times and favors went 10 out of 13 and had 24 points in this game a lot of it being on these slips to the rim even like Jay Crowder was getting involved on these slips so Utah we've talked so many times when you're going against a switching defense of all right you got to have really good execution in a number of ways right it can't just be one thing you got to surprise the defense it's just little subtleties on every play there's not necessarily one play call that you're going to run it's just you got to try a bunch of things on every play slip screens just run a little harder a a lot of little different things that you can do make sure that their big man is guarding someone so you can't get a defensive rebound that was another place that that the jazz hurt them and so the jazz really have improved you know the quinn Snyder. that's something that he worked on and so you would think maybe the jazz could look better if they match up against houston but you know they'll both have to actually get over 500 first before we could talk about that yeah uh, a little bit of housekeeping as well for the rockets Brandon Knight could be back there. I'm hearing seven to 10 days now. So that means he could be back before Christmas. What that means, we don't know. And uh, Daryl Morey, we had talked because they cut house and we had wondered kind of what they were doing here. And part of it was just that I'm not rock solid in my own brain on the two-way rules, but they effectively did a swap of Gary Clark and house. So the way they did that was Clark signed a three-year, $3.7 million deal, fully guaranteed this year, half guaranteed next year with some incentives. And then and non-guaranteed in 2020-21. Then, because, so they did it at a time when House had enough time to clear waivers, and then I just completely forgot that he was two-way eligible. He signed a two-way contract, and so they were able to do it at that specific time. This is something Jonathan Fagan pointed out. Doing it early allowed them to have House clear waivers and then sign the two-way contract before the game. I believe that was the game against the Jazz. And so it worked out beautifully for Maury, and I was critical of it. It was because I I didn't see the whole picture. Let's bring in Liam now to talk the LA Clippers. That was his team this week. Uh, what do you got on these guys, Liam? Sure. So first, their fundamentals. Clippers are three and three since the last fifteen and sixty. Sixteen and nine overall. They are ninth in net rating, seventh in offense, and fifteenth in defense. And I wanted to talk more about the defense uh, more than anything else, just because I think I, I think I'm less optimistic that they're going to be able to keep up uh, roughly league average defense. Right now, they're really bad in three of the four defensive factors. Everything but uh, defensive effective field goal percentage and 
they're forcing an above average amount of mid-range shots, but they're also allowing a ton of shots at the rim, even if they are taking away threes. They're really conservative. They're not forcing turnovers at all. They're kind of mimicking Portland's scheme with like the drop big and the pick and roll and just staying home at shooters. So they're last in the league at forcing turnovers. And I think they're getting a little bit of luck from opponent three-point percentage too, sixth lowest in the league. Um, so that's likely to regress in the mean, although they are contesting those shots well, and a lot of those are off the dribble too. So they're doing some things well, but I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on what centers rota- what type of center rotation they should use going forward uh, with Boban, Harrell, and Gortat. I-, I pulled up some numbers for their defensive ratings with those guys, and Boban's got the best defensive rating by far, albeit in a lot fewer minutes. And they're doing a much better job not fouling with him on the floor. They're preventing more shots at the rim. They're the opponents are shooting worse at the rim with Boban on the floor. So I, w- what are your initial thoughts just as Boban as a defensive center? Obviously, he has his mobility limitations and some conditioning issues. But wh- what do you think of him as a drop big in the pick and roll that can you know find the space in between the ball handler and the roll man? But why do you think he has conditioning issues? I feel like when he's out there, he plays pretty hard. Is it just he can't keep that going long enough? Well, I... See, I'm kind of with you, but like the way that coach, like every coaching staff has ever used him, they play him in these like short yeah. stints. And I, I think that's, I don't more know. About, so I guess I was going I more, off more the about the matchups, though. I mean, I think we're, when you look at both his stats and, you know, so, some of his RPM stuff early in his career. It's important to note that he's very much a specialist. I, I think that's how coaches see him. Now, I would have liked for him, some coaches, to try to push beyond that and see, okay, yeah, you know, we're going to give some stuff up here. You know, he can't get out of uh, on the floor at all in pick and roll defense. You know, we're shooting centers. Like, you know, we just, we're just going to live with his limitations and just hope he can affect everything around the rim and get a ton of offensive rebounds and, you know, be a really good offensive center and just hope that the trade-offs are worth it. You know, I never felt like we have quite enough data, but it's clear to me that when he is deployed coaches deploy him in the best possible matchups so we're not seeing the effect of his limitations nearly as much and if he were to play more minutes in more varied situations some of his numbers would probably go down yeah i'd agree i mean i I think obviously there's you know in a bigger sample his defensive rating right now is like 102 so i think that would be much worse in a larger sample but i'm i'm also interested to get your thoughts on how they're using Harold, I think for me with, you know, his mobility and his energy, I think he would probably be a little better fit in a system that is more aggressive where he can get out on the perimeter and maybe hedge double a little bit or switch on the guards. But that's just not the way that the Clippers play necessarily. And especially on those bench units where he's playing, he's often playing with guys like Mike Scott and Lou Williams. And it becomes really hard to play a scheme like that with those two guys, you know, not exactly being the strongest defenders. So he, he's done a pretty good like job. That, you mean, are you talking about uh, the more aggressive scheme or, or the dropback scheme? Oh, the more aggressive yeah. scheme. I think the dropback scheme, at least, I mean, those guys are going to be, you know, bad defenders pretty much no matter what system you're playing. But at least that can minimize some of their weaknesses. But I think if Harrell was playing a little bit more minutes with, you know, Bradley, Shea, uh, Harris, you know, guys that are a little bit mobile, more mobile, and then I think they might have to do some of this in the playoffs, uh, play Harrell more, that is. I think he would probably shine a little bit more as a defender with, you know, with his intensity, his motor, his ability to move out on the perimeter. And, and he is a little bit better of a rim protector with his thick chest. I always think, you know, strong guys are really being strong is a huge part of being a good rim protector. But I yeah, mean, the reality just, just is just as Mike a health Muscala defender. about that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, the, the reality is a lot of the games that I watched him, like, 
he's in the right spot. He walls up correctly. He he contests, and, and guys are just scoring over him just because he doesn't have that type of standing reach that bothers guys. Especially uh, the game against New Orleans, Julius Randle had a massive outing in that game. So I I just don't know. Like obviously they're a good team during the regular season, but. I think a lot of their defensive flaws can get exasperated if they make the postseason in a playoff matchup. But do you think there's anything that they can do to change, whether it's like system or rotations, to give themselves a better chance in the playoffs? Well, I, I think that there is a theoretical unit with Harrell and probably Patrick Beverly and Tobias that you could go with a different defensive scheme. But that's theoretical because Doc has what he likes and a lot of their other personnel doesn't fit that scheme. And so I think he's Doc's kind of going to do what he what he is comfortable with. And then maybe if next year's talent is more conducive to a different approach, they can go to it. But it's kind of a lot to ask for that kind of a big adjustment in season. And so defensively, I mean, you can choose your personnel to a point, but I mean, they're still going to play their best players. And that's a fundamental limitation overall, though it's not on every, you know, there's, I, there's parts of their closing lineup that I like. Yeah, and this is something we talked about with them. I mean, they have a lot of kind of one-way guys uh, on this team, um, and especially offensively. But, you know, I mean, they're, if Lou Williams is going to play a lot for them, they're two forwards, neither of them are are atrocious but they're not positives you know they don't really have anybody who is capable of guarding the best wing threats on the other team and then you know at center none of all their guys have uh, their weaknesses you know you mentioned more aggression from Harrell and I think you know that's been tried at times in his career but he kind of he's not as bad as free but he's kind of got Kenneth free disease and as 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 a guy who looks like he'd be a pretty good switch he's like oh he's, he's undersized like you know he plays hard he could probably move his feet pretty well but he's just not that good laterally uh, for whatever reason um so yeah i mean i'm not sure how they get better i think maybe in bob mute you know if they he can actually get back i mean he has this totally nebulous injury we've heard nothing about but if he can get back and take mike scott's place in the rotation you know that might help shore things up for them a little bit at least on some of those bench units but i agree i mean it's to be average in defense right now i think they're over their heads well i mean if if they're gonna bring um bob mute back and play him at the power forward over mike scott it's gonna get a little bit difficult with those bench lineups they've been playing tyrone wallace at small forward a lot so playing those two with harold that's three non-shooters so like you said there's a lot of issues as far as one-way players on this team and i I was also interested to get your thoughts have you guys what, what do you guys think of avery bradley's defense this season i think obviously he was probably a little overrated as a defender in his prime when he was with the celtics but i think i saw like a ton of mistakes defensively from him just tracking his guy the thing that i thought you know he would be better at i guess and the the on off defensive numbers still you know are are good for him in general it's just i don't know just the eye test it he didn't look like he was defending nearly as well as uh i thought he did in the past at least yeah, I haven't seen just watching him. Uh, you know, I haven't watched him that closely. I think a couple of the games that I've watched, there's a, he didn't play that much or didn't play. But I think, you know, we just haven't seen that crazy impact. I mean, usually when he played for the Celtics, you saw him out there on the floor. You noticed him. You noticed that he was causing guys, his individual matchups problems. I mean, he's never been very impactful as a help guy, which is part of what you're talking about here. Uh, but, and also just because he likes to really stick to his man. But, you know, I haven't seen him quite as effective on ball at, at this point in time. And, you know, after coming off of that groin surgery, I mean, your groin's pretty damn important uh, when you're getting into a stance. So, and it, it's possible that he could be moving into a new phase of his career. Athletically, you know, those real pressure defense guard types, you're, going to lose that uh, pretty early on in your career relative to maybe some of the other skills um well something else i I, I wanted to mention briefly is that 
with Avery Bradley, I've always thought his best skill was defending on ball, and he just has fewer opportunities on this iteration of the Clippers because when he's playing with Patrick Beverly, Patrick Beverly's getting a lot of those assignments. And so then you get more into Avery Bradley navigating ball screens, Avery Bradley, you know, f- figuring out wh- whether he's going to help or whether he's going to double or, or everything like that. And Bradley is best at locking in. He's like a cover corner. He locks in on his guy. He makes sure his guy doesn't get the ball. And that's what he does super well. And the more you slide him away from primary ball handlers, the more you slide him to these off-guard type guys, the less value to me he is going to provide. And then the but the big concern is that if he takes a half step or even a full step back, athletically, groin surgery, getting older, both, whatever, then he becomes less va- valuable in those matchups because there's certain speed guys where you need all of your faculties you know, to, to really hold those guys. And so if you narrow the field of players that he's useful against, that makes it harder. But I, I think that there's a chance that he's just one of those guys, and this happens all over the league, where needs to be deployed in the right situation. And so that's about getting him the right surrounding talent and having the right need on your team. You know, maybe something like what's going on in Philly, where they want somebody who can defend guys who have the ball in their hands, but don't run the offense. That sort of a thing might work better for him. Yeah. And Bradley has always been a little bit of a jacker offensively. And on some of those Celtics teams that he was on, that they needed that. He deserves credit for what he's been able to do in terms of evolving his offense and his shot. But you know, now they have so many threats on this team. It's like, okay, whenever he touches it, it's like, all right, I haven't sh- touched it in a while. I got to jack up a shot. I might be a free agent next year. You know, uh, like, so I don't think he's really been a quality offensive piece and he, he could stand to reduce his role quite a bit. But uh, we, uh, that's not really exactly uh, what he wants to do. You know, he's always viewed himself as kind of more than simply a role player. Last thing on them, uh, what do you think of Shea's performance so far this year, Liam? Well, I've been a huge Shea fan since before the draft. So I, I think the future is really bright for him. He's third on the team in minutes. So that's that shows that the coaching staff really has a lot of faith in him and the way he's executing what they want. Yeah, so, so, so I mean, he's, he's got, has he played the most minutes any of their guards? Is it like Gallo and Harris are, are one and two and then it's, and then it's him? Um, Hold on, let me pull it up right here. Uh, Yeah, it's Gallo, Harris, and him. Yep, you're right. Um, So yeah, I mean, he's, he's got his flaws still. He's only taken about one three a game and he's only shooting like 35% on that. So at, at least they're the beginning signs of an outside shot there, but he's been really good from mid-range so far and he's getting to the rim decently and uh finishing well and getting to the line so he's doing a lot of things well and i think defensively he's been a big factor in keeping them you know just decent at least he's not the best on ball defender he gets beat there but like you said with bradley where bradley's strength is really like locking in on one guy i think shay's strength is really you know playing off guys and you know creating a little havoc in passing lanes and being a good help defender i think it's it's pretty valuable when you have a guard that can rotate on the back line and actually be more of an impetus at, at the rim and shay's that type of player so i think he offers them a ton of positional flexibility having a guy that's six six and that long that can handle the ball and is showing that he can create his own shot as a rookie obviously he needs to get better at that but i, I think the future is really bright for him uh, i i think he's gonna be really good i mean what i don't know profiles is maybe a near all-star player like as a ceiling mm. obviously he has a lot of room to grow there but i don't know i i, I just have a lot of faith in him <laughs> i heard you make a noise there so I, i'm guessing uh you're probably not as high as i am uh, well uh, no i i wouldn't say that i mean i think that's just a, a strong statement i i could see him getting there you know I, I don't think he has quite the explosion or the shooting ability to really get into like an all-star level of score now maybe he could develop that but it and we've seen some point guards develop that some don't uh but you know kind of his set shot he, he's not 
not it would need a lot of surgery to really get to be you know a really good three-point shooter for him who's, who's really aggressive and you know i do like his finishing but he kind of he it seems like a lot of the ways that he's good right now and maybe this is a concern about Doncic to some degree we talked about him earlier as well as it seems like he's kind of getting to his spot craft you know he's got good length and size but he's not blowing by guys so you wonder about the upside there but you know i think he could certainly be a solid starter for a long time and you know it's possible so the distance between solid starter and near all-star at times isn't that big at the point guard position you know depending what kind of team you're on how much they need you to score you can jack your usage up a little bit and get into that lower end type of all-star conversation so no I'm not, I'm not ruling that out at all he's been very impressive so far this year i mean as a 19 year old point guard 20 year old point guard to give effective play and have earned doctor's trust this quickly is no mean feat something small yeah. i wanted to add that i find interesting shea has been assisted on 92 percent of his threes and 16 percent of his twos so you can kind of separate out what his game is in, in each part of it and that makes sense for a guy who's getting comfortable with his three-point shot to do it all as catch and shoot because he can't really create though or he doesn't want to take those pull-up threes yet so that's another element that he can add to his game moving forward and also we'll need to get a better sense of who he's better at defending and then well you know it's i've talked about this with donovan mitchell a lot of what kind of guy do you want next to him and i think that's one of the goals of this season i mean it's a lot of it is dependent for next year on supply but over the next two to three years it's figuring out okay how good is shea what makes sense next to him and what can we get all right, that was fun. Uh, anything you need to talk about before we go, Danny? Yeah, I have been working for over a week on a big piece about the Wizards, kind of how they got here, where they go, and different approaches on it. And considering their depressing loss over the weekend, it it, it, did, it was already scheduled a long time ago. It seems appropriate that it'll come out. And that is at The Athletic, of course. Theathletic.com slash Capspace. Yeah, and the news that John Wall has been struggling through these heel issues is certainly a concern for Washington as well. All right, so we'll be back with the rest of the 15 and 60 pretty quickly here. Uh, but we had to split it into two parts because of the trade news and some other stuff we wanted to get to. So we will talk to you all next time. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.